0: Hello and welcome to The Things You Thought You Knew, the A-Level Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Little, and today I'm joined by Kenneth Ehrenberg. Hello. How are you today? Doing well, thanks. So before we get into Kantian deontological ethics, would you like to quickly discuss your background with philosophy, how you got into it, what you're doing at the moment?
1: Sure. I actually started philosophy not around the same time you did, actually. I started when I was about 16 years old. I got into it originally because um, before that... I started secondary school the year before that, and I did um, competitive debate, but I was a novice debater. This was a kind of um, we did policy debate at the time, and I was I was at a school that was very competitive, had a very competitive debate program, and I just barely didn't make the cut for the varsity team. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to do more debating, so I went to a camp that taught me to do philosophical debating, another kind of debating in the United States called Lincoln-Douglas debating. Um, and that's where I first got my taste of mostly political and moral philosophy. Um, and I was really bitten by the bug then. So that was about the, the summer when I was about 16 years old. Uh, and that changed my mind about what I wanted to do. Before that, I wanted to be a diplomat. And after that, all I wanted to do was be a philosophy professor. Um, so From there, after secondary school, I went to Columbia University in New York City and studied philosophy. Along the way, I had a a philosophy professor, my comp professor, actually, who told me that um, you always need a backup if you want to become a philosophy professor because it's kind of a competitive road to go. So you might want to have something ready to go in the background. Um, So as a result, I went to law school. So i applied originally to um, programs in the United States law school is actually a, a postgraduate degree it's not an undergraduate degree like it is here so I, I applied to programs where I could do both my law degree and my philosophy degree um, I got in to stay at Columbia but I thought it'd be a good idea if I could mix it up a little bit get some more background from other places so I was lucky enough to get into Yale for law school so I did one year of my philosophy um, graduate degree and got a master's then I dropped out and I went to Yale for my law degree where I studied mostly philosophy anyway um, they were very flexible about the way the program was structured. You can study a lot of whatever you wanted. So I studied a lot of philosophy of law. Then I practiced law for two years and kind of begged to come back and finish my PhD in philosophy in philosophy at Columbia. So that's what I did. And then my first job was teaching philosophy at the University of, at Buffalo, the State University of New York in Buffalo. And then I got another job teaching philosophy at the University of Alabama, which was in Tuscaloosa. And then from there, um, just about three years ago, I got a job here at the University of Surrey in the law school teaching philosophy of law, which is my main area of expertise, philosophy of law. Uh, law. Surrey doesn't have a philosophy department, but it has a very strong program in legal philosophy. Half of its, um, of, its, of its teachers, of its staff members are philosophers of one stripe or another. And we have probably the biggest concentration of professional, professional legal philosophers in um, maybe in the world. And we have something called the Surrey Center for Law and Philosophy, which is online. You can check it out if you're interested.
0: Cool. So the Surrey Center of Law and Philosophy, if anybody wants to check that out. Yeah. Surrey Center for Law and Philosophy. I'll make sure to put put a link to that in the description then. Uh, So what is your biggest interest in philosophy? Just like what do you enjoy the most about it? so I mostly
1: work in um, i have a my I have a book that I wrote in 2016 on what would be called the social ontology of law so ontology is the study of what exists it's kind of a branch of metaphysics it's like what's the nature of existence and so one big question is what's the nature of law that's a big question that legal philosophers ask um so my theory is which i share with some other people is that law is basically an artifact artifacts are like tools they're subclass of tools like hammers and chairs so law is just something that we create in order to um in order for for us to be able to, you know, do good things in society with it, with things that we think are good or that are good for us, right? Same thing why we would use a tool. We use a tool to hammer or to sit on or whatever we do with a tool. We do it for the sake of some goal that we're trying to achieve, and we do the same thing with law. It's just that law is abstract, and it has a whole system of rules about how things within it count and what counts as, as as an actual rule within the system and then how that rule within the system gives us reasons to act in certain ways. So that's that's one thing I'm interested in, which is you might call the ontology or the social ontology of law. The other thing I'm moving into now is more discussions of authority. What makes legal authority legitimate when it is legitimate when is it legitimate and what's the difference between um, legal authority or governmental authority and other forms of authority like your parents or you know, um, maybe police officers, which are sort of like legal authority, but in a different way, um, or teachers or religious leaders, you know, um, maybe even in the workplace, your boss is a kind of authority, those kinds of authorities. What's the difference between that and the legal authority? What, what are the differences between what makes one legitimate When I say legitimate, what gives them a right to tell you what to do is really what I'm saying. So what makes one legitimate? How is that similar in different domains and things like that?
0: What is the name of your book, just in case anyone's interested?
1: So my book is called The Functions of Law. And as I said, it was published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. So The Functions of Law, you can get it on Amazon or you can get it from... Uh, Oxford University Press there used to be a, a discount I could try to find out that I'm not sure the discount code is still active though but I can see they'll reactivate it or something if you get a yeah. command
0: yeah I'll try I'll put, I'll put a link to that book in the description as well but I'll definitely great. check it out myself as well because it sounds really That'd interesting
1: great I'd love it
0: so today we're discussing Kantian deontological ethics right could you briefly summarize what that means so
1: to say that it's deontological ethics is to say that it's about uh what your duties are and understanding what the right thing to do is or the best thing to do in terms of duties and rules as opposed to um other forms of ethics the two big ones that you're likely to study you probably already know are um utilitarianism and um, virtue ethics so these are both in different ways forms of consequentialism although Virtue ethics is a little complicated, but to say that it's consequentialism is to say that it's basically a form of evaluating what you're supposed to do based on what you think the consequences of your action are going to be. So there's no there 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 are, there are wrinkles here, of course, but there what makes something right or wrong in these other areas are what the consequences of the action are gonna be. So in utilitarianism, it's just about Are you going to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number? That's the, is the the action gonna bring about the greatest good for the greatest number? If so, then it's the right thing to do. If not, then it's not the right thing to do. Um, there are wrinkles again with r- rule utilitarianism and things like that, but that's just probably goes beyond the scope of what you need now. Um, and then virtue ethics is, uh, in a sense, another form of consequentialism. Is the consequence of your action ultimately going to be that you are inculcating a good, cor- a good form of of your of your character? Are you increasing your goodness of character by acting in that way? And if so, then it's a good a good thing to do. And if not, it's generally not a good thing to do. Deontological ethics is a form of ethics that focuses instead on what the right thing to do is independently of the consequences. Now, technically, it's not to say that consequences are irrelevant. It's just that they don't come in in a direct way in assessing whether it's the right thing to do or not. Rather, we try to understand in some other way what our duties are, and then the rightness of an action is just about whether or not it accords with that duty are you in are you acting in accordance with duty and that determines whether or not
0: you're doing the right thing right could you explain what a goodwill what can't means when it says a goodwill
1: now yeah that's a really interesting question some people debate about what that means i think the best way to understand the goodwill is to understand it kind of as the intention to do the right thing the goodwill is the intention simply to do whatever the right thing is so when you act Kant has this interesting idea that once you understand what your duty is, you you know, it's great if you can do your duty. That's the most important thing. Just do the right thing, that's the most important thing. But there's different ways of doing your duty if you think about it. You could do it because you it makes you happy or you could do it because it makes you feel good to feel that you're a good person or you could do it because you think it'll make you know other people happy or it'll maybe you'll people will like you more or maybe you could do it because you think people will you know give you money if you do the good thing or something like that so those are all actions those are all actions that are in accord with duty because you're still doing the right thing but you're not doing it out of duty one way to think of it might be that you in a sense you're not really getting moral credit for doing the actions for those reasons because those aren't moral reasons to do the action you're you're refraining from doing bad things or you're doing good things like giving to charity or whatever it is but your reason for doing it is could be a selfish reason so you're not acting from a moral motivation so the goodwill is really the moral motivation. The idea simply that the reason that you're going to use the the idea of your motivation for your action is going to be whatever it is that makes the action good, the right thing to do. Right. So, when I say when I go out, if I let's think about giving to charity. If I think, okay, well, it give, makes me feel good to give to charity, or even it'll 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 help the person. If my only motive is to you know, let's say feel good because I like the feeling of seeing the smile on the face of the person I gave I gave the money to or something like that. In a way, those are selfish motives, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm doing a good thing, I'm doing a good deed, but I'm not really doing it for the best reason. If I'm doing it simply because it's the right thing to do and all I wanna do is to be a be a good person, I just wanna be a good person by doing the right thing, and it's not to make me happy or feel good or to make, you know, or to be popular or anything like that, then that's suggesting that I'm acting from the goodwill, which is the intention to do the right thing for the right reason.
0: Right, and the really interesting example is, as you said, acting because you like the smile you get from the homeless person when you give them money. It right. seems very much like the correct reason to be doing it, but Kant's going one further and saying, that's too far, that's still a selfish reason that you should just be doing it because it's good. Not right, even- exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, um, So again, that, the really important thing to get there is asking out of duty in, in accordance with duty. Right, and it's not that Kant would say,
1: don't give money to charity unless you're, can get, you can do it out of duty. Of course, he still thinks you should give the money to charity. You should always comply with your duties. Question is, do you, And what, as I said before, one way to think about it, do you get moral credit for it? Are you really doing a, mo- in a sense, it's not a moral action unless it has a moral motive. Be right, to put it so it's still we have lots of things that we do that aren't moral, that aren't moral or immoral, right? I mean, you know, sitting down, putting our feet up, watching TV, unless you're violating some duty by watching TV because you should be out doing volunteer work or something like that, but apart from that. You know, if you have a reasonable amount of time where you can kick back and relax or whatever, having a nice meal, all of these things, they may not have any moral characteristics with respect to them. And there's there's no way you could get moral credit for them. So in a sense, what Kant is saying is that when you do something that you usually would think of as moral, but you're not doing it for a moral reason, then it's the same thing as like watching TV or doing something you're allowed to do. Um, and you, you would still say you should do it because not to do it would be a bad thing but you're not getting the kind of moral credit for it. It's not really a moral action anymore in a certain way.
0: Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. And it, sometimes it can be difficult to understand what it means to be out of duty or in accordance with duty. So Kant himself gave three different examples for that. Right. Uh, uh, do you want to explain the shopkeeper example?
1: see. let's see, I'm trying to remember now. That's where the shopkeeper is, is this about the price or something? It's like about that?
0: The, the change, the change the shopkeeper gives.
1: Right. So when he, when the shopkeeper, okay. So the shopkeeper has given you too too much change. Is that right? I'm sorry if I.
0: Remember that's that. fine. I can cover it myself quickly if you want. Um. Yeah. So, two different shopkeepers at different shops. They yeah. both give the right amount of change to their customers. Right. One of them gave the right amount of change because it's right to give the right amount of change. Yes. Right. The other one gave the right amount of change just because uh, he wanted the right. customer to come back.
1: Come back. Right. So that's a great example. Yeah, I remember now.
0: So, right, so the person who gives the right amount of change because it's the right thing
1: to do, that person is acting out of moral duty and is acting from the moral duty to do the right thing. And therefore, as I said, they get kind of moral credit. They're doing a moral action. The person who gives the right change because they want the, the customer to come back, that's not a moral motivation for what they're doing. They're not complying out of duty one way to think about it another way i like to think about this because it touches a little bit more on my own work is when you think about it as a law are you obeying the law or are you merely conforming to the law right that would be one way to make a distinction when you stop at the red light in your car if you're driving a car and you stop at the red light most of the time when you stop at the red light you're stopping at the red light because you're afraid of getting into an accident right or you're right. or you're afraid of getting a or you're afraid of getting a ticket by by, by the police or something That's not stopping at the red light because the law is to stop at the red light. You're not obeying the law. You're merely conforming with it. To obey the law is to stop at the red light, but just because that's the law, right? Right. The reason to stop at the light is that it's the law that's supposed to stop at the light. So when you apply this to a moral situation, the only way to say that you're acting morally is to to give the correct change because it's the right thing to do and not because you expect the person to come back into your shop. This also, by the way, touches, and I don't want to skip ahead, on the distinction between a categorical imperative and a hypothetical imperative, right? So the w- we can talk more about that if you want, but the basic idea is that the person who is giving the change because they want the customer to come back is following a hypothetical imperative, you know? I will give the correct change because I want this person to come back. In a way, that's a very contingent, It's it's not a, it's it's a contingent way of doing the right thing yeah contingent upon them coming back if you knew for a fact that they weren't going to come back then you're not gonna you don't your reason for doing the right thing evaporates whereas the person who does it because it is the right thing their motivation for doing the right thing doesn't evaporate because it doesn't depend on a consequence that may or may not happen right Right. the point about deontology and consequences When you make morality depend on consequences, and you realize that consequences may or may not happen, you never know for sure what's gonna happen. Then once you knew a situation in which the consequence you thought was good was not gonna happen, then that would no longer be the right thing to do. The right thing to do should be the right thing, no matter what, right? And so even if the guy doesn't come back, it's still the right thing to give the correct change, so how do you figure out, you know, what, how do you figure out what the correct motivation is to make sure that you're always going to do the right thing and not depending on whether or not the guy's going to come back? Uh,
0: exactly. Because uh, you could say like with the shopkeeper example, um, if a tourist from out of town came to the shop and the shopkeeper knew they were going home the next day, the shopkeeper right. who does it because it's right will give the right change. But the shopkeeper right. who does it because he wants the customers to come back, he might not give the right change anymore. So it's like looking at your values and seeing do you always stick to them? Right. I mean, but even if there
1: was a situation in which you could imagine where it's not about whether they're going to come back, like you do it because you want to see the smile on their face or something like that, you can still say it's still very contingent. Because what if this person just has a, a, a frowny face? Then all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe I won't give him the correct change because he has a frowny face I'm not going to see a smile, you know?
0: Exactly right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Everything dependent on consequences is contingent. And once it's contingent, it's not universal. It's not always going to get, lead you to the right thing. That's the, that's the insight that Kant had.
0: Right. So, again, Kant have three examples. The other two were the depressed man and the charitable person. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll briefly go into the depressed man, but the charitable person we won't go into for time. Um, so the depressed man is a really interesting one and one that's kind of difficult to understand, but basically yeah. he's saying someone who's happy uh, continues their own life because they want to continue their own life, because they're having a good time, they're enjoying it. Whereas the pressed man continues his life because it's the correct thing to do. He wants to die, but he preserves his life because it's the morally right action.
1: Yeah, so this is a very interesting facet of Kant that people like, like to talk about a lot. And it's, it's a really facet, I, some people it really resonates with their intuitions and some people it doesn't resonate with their intuitions. The idea is that the, what, what that's lying behind this is that the only time You can be really sure that you're doing something for the right reason is when you don't really want to do it anymore right so if you're doing it despite the fact that you don't want to do it then you know then you've got better evidence that you're actually doing it out of duty that that's the only reason left for you to do it and if you do it then then you know you're doing it for the right reason whereas if you have these other considerations well i'm maintaining my life because i'm happy and it makes me feel good to be alive I mean, again, you're complying with your duty, but you're not doing, you're not getting any moral credit for that. It's not really a moral action anymore because you're not doing it for the, the, you're not doing it for the moral reason. You're doing it for another reason because it makes you happy. So it's a weird thing that, you know, the person who does their duty kind of quote unquote reluctantly gets more moral credit in a way than the person who does it, you know, out of they're, you know with, in line with their character and because it makes them happy so in a way this part of the uh, this idea of Kant's is kind of going against Aristotle's notion um in a, a, a virtue ethics in some ways because you know the whole idea of virtue ethics is to kind of inculcate in your character a desire to do the right thing so that I mean there's some debate about how to interpret Aristotle here but I mean, Kant would try to say, I don't think that he was going against Aristotle, but a lot of people think he was, that, you know, when you're doing the right thing, it makes you happy, right? Um, According to Aristotle, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make it so that you get happiness, you get flourishing and good, good feeling and all those things, happiness, from doing the right thing and you want to do the right thing and it makes you happy. That's the character you're looking for. Kant says, well, once you get that, then now you're not doing it out of the right, you don't have the right reasons anymore. You're doing it not out of duty, you're doing it because it makes you feel good. So, you know, if you wanna say, so it's interesting because some people think that's a bad side of Kant and some people say, well, you know, there's something something there that kind of speaks to our understanding about when you really wanna be sure that you're doing something for the right reason, it's gotta be because you're reluctant to do it, that you would rather not have to do it but you feel you have to, and that's the only reason you're doing it. That's where you've really gotten to what you would call the goodwill.
0: So if we're going to link that back to the shopkeeper who gives the change because it's the right thing to do. Let's say the shopkeeper was really struggling to pay his bills this month. So he he knows that he wants to sneak a little bit of the change away, but the, the shopkeeper who still gives it, that's how he can know that he's acting in the goodwill.
1: Right, that's the best evidence. There's some debate about whether you could ever really know for sure. Right. Think about it. You know, there's always the worry. There's always a, a baseline worry that, well, you know what? It makes me feel good to feel that I'm doing the right thing. You know, it actually I, I can I can kind of keep my head up high a little bit to know I'm I'm a good person because I'm doing the right thing even when I when I'm when my back is to the wall financially or whatever. And so that always risks undermining the. Um, the, the goodwill but the best evidence he says it's not a hundred percent but the best evidence that you have that you're doing it for the right reason is when your inclination is leading you in the opposite direction
0: right okay so you briefly touched earlier on hypothetical and categorical imperatives should yeah. we define those terms now sure yeah so so a categorical imperative
1: it's a weird word but maybe by t- understanding what a hypothetical imperative would be it would be the best way to understand it. So first, the other thing that he talks about is maxims. So maybe if I, under, if I explain a maxim, right, I can explain what an imperative is, and then I can explain the difference between hypothetical and categorical. So a maxim is just, I mean, you can look this up in the dictionary, and it's basically what he's saying, right? A maxim is kind of like a little rule that you would a rule of thumb would be a good way to put it. A, rule, a maxim is like a rule of thumb in a sense. Right. It's, it's you're considering what am I going to do in this kind of circumstance? And usually the way I learned it was a maxim comes has three parts to it. The ends that you're trying to achieve, the means that you're going to use to achieve them and the circumstances in which those two things come together. Right. So ends, means and circumstances, three parts to it. And whenever you're like, whenever you're going around through life and you're making decisions, you look at your options and your reason is weighing the goods and the bads of the different options and when you're weighing those goods and bads and the different options in your decision-making process you are setting a standard for yourself by entertaining these rules of thumb When i'm in this situation should i do this kind of thing to achieve that outcome or should i do that kind of thing to achieve this outcome and one would think that because you're using reason to do that once you've set that self up for your, once you've adopted a maxim and you say, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to, when I'm hungry, I'm gonna go out and I'm going to buy a piece of pizza, right? So let's imagine that's your maxim. So once you do that, depending on, you're gonna build more into the circumstances. You're not always eating pizza, but you're going to think, okay, well in these kinds of circumstances, that's what I will expect to do. You're gonna be consistent. Why? Well, first of all, you don't wanna have to reassess every single time. But second of all, you know, part of what it means to be a rational being is to act consistently because being inconsistent is somewhat irrational. So the rationalists say, well, when the circumstances are the same, I should make the exact same choice, right? Shouldn't make a different choice whenever the circumstances are exactly the same. Once you weighed everything, if you came to the correct conclusion, that's what you should do again, right? So the, the maxim is this little rule of thumb that you're kind of giving yourself every t- time you make a decision. A hypothetical imperative would be a a form that the maxim would take that includes those considerations. Once you've adopted the maxim, then you're kind of making it into a little bit more of a rule that could be more expressed uh, in a little bit more of a general way, right? So examples are like, you know, I should drink something to quench my thirst, right? Right. So whenever I'm thirsty, that's the circumstance, I should drink something in order to quench my thirst. So it's hypothetical because it's dependent on what the goal is to quench my thirst, right? Yeah. Put it in the form of an if then statement. If I want to quench my thirst, then I should drink something, right? So that's why it's a hypothetical imperative. The imperative part is I should do it or I must do it. It's the idea of the the kind of that you put into it. The maxim being a rule of thumb Doesn't necessarily yet have that kind of level of imperative that you that you ought to do it, right? Yeah. Adopted it, you've adopted it and you made it more into an imperative, then you're saying, in order to do this, I ought to do that. In order to accomplish this goal, I ought to, you know, drink something or go get the piece of pizza or whatever it is. Right? So that's the that's the imperative part. It's hypothetical because it's dependent upon the goal or the the end, if you will, the end being whatever it is you're trying to achieve, and that's what makes it hypothetical, because it's, you could put it into a form of an if-then, right? If I have that goal, then I will do this. Categorical imperative is one that doesn't depend on a goal, and weird to use the word categorical here it's kind of a weird translation but if you looked it up you'd see it in one of the late a lower one of those lower down definitions so it has like two or three definitions you see lower down it's an imperative that applies to a whole category of beings if you will so the hypothetical imperative each one only applies to that goal right each one is dependent on that goal a categorical yeah. imperative is an imperative that would imply apply to all rational beings the the category of rational beings right so we are rational beings we're partially rational i mean we're we're rational beings but we also have what we call you know kind of animal urges right so we're kind of mixed beings and that's very important for Kant because when he compares us he thinks of us he, he thinks we're in between you know the beasts and the angels for him angels aren't necessarily the kinds with the Halos and the and the wings and all that—they are simply rational, fully rational beings that don't have any um, any kind of um, animal urges to distract them. The thing that makes us free beings, freedom in a certain uh, freedom is a complicated complicated idea. But the thing that makes us free beings for Kant is that we have this this tension between reason telling us what the right thing to do is and our animal instincts that potentially could lead us may lead us away from the right thing right right yeah so, so categorical imperative is simply an imperative that applies to all rational beings the category being rational beings go ahead sorry
0: yeah that's fine so to briefly like sum up effectively a maxim uh, when you're forming a maxim you need to specify the action specify the circumstances and then specify the end yeah uh, and then to qu- quickly just kind of sum up what a category I had for hypothetical imperative is because they're quite hard to sum up but the way to think of a hypothetical one is x is good if it leads to y uh, which as you said earlier consequentialism and then a a categorical imperative would be x is good regardless of what it leads to so you could just say x is good
1: right the form that the imperative the the, what thing you have to get you have to one the one wrinkle I would say to try to improve what you improve upon what you said a little bit is to try to maintain the form of an imperative when you're explaining what it is. So instead of just saying it's good or the action is good, the the idea of the imperative is that it, it's it's a it's an it's got an oomph t- towards action behind it. It's something you ought to do. So I right. ought to, or I must do this, right? So it's not just simply that it's good to do. It's that I, I gotta do it. I ought to do it. I must do it because. In the hypothetical example, in the hypothetical imperative, because of the goal, if I want this, then I must do this. If I want to keep my thirst, I must drink a drink. Whereas so, yeah. imperative, I must do it merely because I'm a rational being, as a category of rational beings. Since I'm a member of that category of rational beings, I must do it.
0: So instead of X is good if it leads to Y, I ought to do X because it leads to Y for the hypothetical. I
1: ought to do X. I ought to do X because I want Y, you know, would be Right,
0: yeah, yeah, because I want Y, yeah. And then categorical, it would just be, I ought to do X because X is good. Right. So is there anything else you want to say about hypothetical and categorical imperatives? Yeah, Yeah. the formulation,
1: but how we get from the idea, one of the things that's really interesting about Kant is the whole idea of a categorical imperative for Kant automatically leads to what its content is. Right. The difference between that and a hypothetical imperative. Hypothetical imperatives, they depend a lot upon, you know, all of these contingent considerations. What is your goal? What are your capacities? What are your talents? What are your abilities? Right. What can you achieve? What can't you achieve? You know, um, you know, if you can't do things, Kant says ought implies can, which means if you can't do something, you're not going to say I ought to do it. Right. Right how to drive you're not going to say i'm going to drive to the store to get the piece of pizza when i'm hungry right i mean you're gonna instead you're gonna call you're gonna call dominoes and they're gonna deliver because you don't know how to drive so the 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 imperative is going to be all these contingent factors the categorical imperative although it still depends on the idea of ought implies can you can't be you can't be uh you can't have something to do that you're not able to do the very idea is what is something that all rational beings should always do right? right and this is where this is where it starts to get complicated so the first formulation we can tell you what the formulation then i can get there from the very idea of a categorical imperative so the first formulation is act only on those maxims whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law, right? So what does that mean? So first of all, we talked about what maxims are. You're entertaining maxims, you're deciding, right? So you still have, all of the maxims are, still have consi- ends, means, and circumstances. So the, the ends are still in them, right? You're, you're not gonna do something for no reason at all. You still have reasons to do those things. And those things are gonna be tied to your, what you're trying to achieve. So the idea is that you should always act rational. Now, here's the thing that gets really, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it, but it's a little complicated. What do you share? What makes you a human being, right? I mean, it's, it's in a way the opposite of the way we think about things right now. What makes you important as a human being? For Kant, it's the, your capacity for reason. Right. And the interesting thing that's a little bit the opposite, we think of we think of what makes us human beings is what makes us unique. You know, what makes us important is that we're all special and we're all different from each other. And it's, I'm not trying to say that's wrong, but for Kant, it's it's the opposite. It's what makes us all the same that makes us important. Right. Right. And what makes us the same is our capacity for reason. Reason is what binds us together. What reason is what makes us human our ability to reason, and that's what we don't share, according to him, with the animals. That's what raises us above the animals, according to him. And reason is the same for everybody. Given the exact same set of circumstances and considerations, every rational being would come to the exact same conclusion about any given situation. The thing that pulls us in different directions, that's that's our animal nature, right? because you want pizza and I want salad, or you want pizza, maybe salad's a bad example because maybe it's healthier, but you want pizza and I want pasta or something like that. Because that's a contingent fact about our taste in food or something. Right. So any, all of those hypothetical imperatives are going to be dependent on these contingencies that are not the same for every individual because they're not coming out of reason. They're coming from our animal, you know, our animal inclinations. Our inclinations are those things, and when you follow, and this is the interesting thing, and this is an interesting thing about what freedom means for Kant. Sorry if I'm getting a little bit off the subject, but I have to do it in order to come back. Freedom for Kant is not our notion of doing whatever you want, right? eating pizza when you want to eat pizza, and eating pasta when you want to eat pasta, and you know, going for a walk when it's nice out because it makes you feel good, and you know, all of those other things that you want to do. Those are, in general, you're acting because the best way to think of it is, is I, I always like to use the metaphors from the, the old cartoons. You ever see the old cartoons? You'll, you'll, you'll see like someone will put like, let's say a pie on the windowsill and this little this little like the 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 smell of the pie will be looking like the steam that comes off the pie yeah yeah waft yeah. into the nose of somebody walking by and it'll like go like this with the finger it'll turn into a finger and it'll say like and then maybe the finger will like grab the nose like stick in the nose of the character and pull them towards the pie right yeah that's the image that kant gives us of following our inclinations When you follow your inclination, it's not like you can avoid it in every circumstance. When you follow your inclination, you are being controlled by the pie. You're no longer free because you're being controlled by the pie. So freedom is not doing whatever you want because whatever you want most of the time is just being controlled by your desires. To be free is not to be controlled by your desires. Those are contingent, those change from person to person. Those are your animal inclinations. Freedom is being able to follow rules that you give yourself. Follow rules you give yourself is freedom. How do you give yourself rules? Well, they have to be rational rules because only the rational ones are the ones that aren't just following your inclination. So once you start thinking about following rules you give yourself, you realize that in the end, you basically would give yourself the same rules that every other rational being would give themselves. Because if it's not something a rational being would give to him or herself, then it's probably coming from inclination. So that's why the categorical imperative is the same for everybody. Now it says, act only on the maxim that you can at the same time will, that it should become a universal law. Why? Because you should only act on those maxims that every rational being could adopt. So if you were to imagine making it not a maxim, but making it a a law that everyone would have to follow, could you still make, would it still make sense to act on that maxim? So the interesting thing about the categorical imperative is it actually doesn't tell you directly what your duty is. It tells you indirectly what your duty is what it gives you is not a duty what it gives you is a permission if you think of the categorical imperative at least in this formulation as a test of maxims because it's saying act only on that maxim that you can at the same time will that it should be a universal law right if it passes the test then that's a maxim that you're allowed to act on doesn't mean you have to act on it. it means you're allowed to act on it now the way it gives you duties is if some kind of opposing maxim, don't do that, would fail the categorical imperative. The only time you get, actually get a duty out of a categorical imperative is when a maxim fails it. Then you know it's the opposite is your duty. Right. Sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, permissions, you could be permitted to do, you know, two opposing things. When you're at a, a when you're, you know, you're taking a path, you're walking through the park and taking a path, you see two options you know go right or to go left you know you could test those maxims and they both work uh, can i make it a universal law that i should go right yeah sure everybody could go right if they're coming up to this kind of path in these kinds of circumstances what if it was a consideration of reason to go right yes everyone could do that it would pass what about left yes everyone could do that it would pass so there's no there's no duty here this is just either one is permissible according to categorical imperative so now, theoretically, there might be some way of saying I'm acting this way because it's permitted, but in general, that would be extremely hard to understand how you're acting out of a motive of duty there because there's no real duty there, right? Only where one of the options is closed off because it fails the categorical imperative, then you know the other option is um, is your duty.
0: So we've got the, the, two, the two contradictions, the contradiction in conception and the contradiction in will.
1: Good, Um, yeah, maybe that's the best way to, can I talk about that? Do you want me to talk about that next?
0: Yeah, uh, should I define it, and then you're going to explain what it means? Yeah. Yeah. So start of contradiction in conception, a maxim is wrong if the situation in which everyone acted on that maxim is somehow self-contradictory. So how do things fail the
1: categorical imperative? Remember, the categorical imperative, at least in this formulation, is a test of the permissibility of an action of a maxim. When I choose to act in a certain way, it's, remember, the maxim is like a rule of thumb, I'm testing my rule of thumb when I want to do, when I want to achieve this, I will do that in, the, in such and such circumstances. Ends, means, and circumstances, X, Y, and C, right? Um, so I'm testing the maxim. When a maxim fails, now th- let's think about, let's think about the form of the categorical imperative, at least this form, the first form. Act only according to the maxim whereby you can, at the same time will, that it should become a universal law, right? so it can fail in two ways one way the one you just mentioned is that it can it becomes a contradiction you can't make it into a universal law because if everyone were to make it in a universal law the maxim itself would be cont- contradictory how well a great example is lying i think that's the best example the lying promise is the example that he gives right when i'm a little bit hard up and i need some money i will ask my friend to loan me some money, promising to pay it back, when I don't really have any intention to do so. So how does this fail the categorical imperative? It fails the categorical imperative because I can't make it a universal law, a universal law that says whenever someone is hard up for money, they can make a lying promise to their friend. That universal law won't achieve the ends that the maxim was trying to achieve. Remember that maxims, say, in order to achieve these ends, I will adopt these means in similar circumstances. Once you've made this maxim into a universal law to lie to your friend to get money, you will no one will be able to achieve those ends anymore. The ends using this maxim will no longer work because no one will believe anyone making a promise anymore, certainly not when they're trying to get money because the idea is it's now a universal law. Everyone makes a lying promise when they're trying to get money. And once it's a universal law, no one's gonna believe the promise anymore. And therefore, the maxim no longer achieves the ends that it originally you thought it was going to achieve. Now let's be very careful here because this is a very common misunderstanding of Kant and this is a very easy way to lose points if you don't understand this. It's not true that the reason that the the lying promise, this you should never say, that the lying promise is immoral because if everybody did it, no one would believe the promise. That wouldn't be enough, right? No one is expecting everyone to do it. The key is that it's no longer rational to adopt that maxim because if everyone did it, right, then the maxim wouldn't make sense. That's the reason it's no longer rational. So it's not because otherwise you're making it sound like the outcome that everyone everyone doesn't believe promises is what makes it irrational. What makes it irrational is simply that the maxim becomes a contradiction, right? Once everyone's doing it, the idea I will lie in order to get the money no longer makes sense because lying will no longer get you the money. Yeah. And it's not—it's not that you're expecting that everyone's going to do this, and therefore you won't get the money. That's not the case here. What's going on is that your little rule, your your rule of thumb that you're entertaining, your maxim, is no longer rational. Once it applies to everybody. Now, there's some very interesting background reasoning for this, right? Which is that again, if you remember that what makes us what makes what what makes us rational is what we have in common. So this idea about the universal law is that you know it applies to everyone because it's what we all have in common—our our, our reason—and what we have that's not in common is all these different animal urges and inclinations and things like that. So once we uh, the idea of making it a universal law is the idea that it should apply to everyone because if it only applies to me, something that only applies to me can't be a can't be a categorical imperative because it's, that I'm that only applies to some things that contingent about me. It's not the same for everybody else. So it must be about something that's just a contingent fact about me, that I happen to be a certain height, that I happen to be a man, that I happen to have a beard, that whatever is contingent, that could change from person to person. That's just contingent. That's not, has anything to do with reason, really. Um, and therefore, when we're applying the rule, you know, the categorical imperative to, you know, say, can I only act on the maxims that should become a universal law? The reason we wanna universalize it is the idea that we universal. when we say it's universal, we mean we can only, we apply it to all rational beings, independently of what makes us different. So we can't make exceptions for ourselves because by making an exception for yourself, you are literally taking yourself out of the group of rational beings you're relying on something that's not about you that's that that's rational and therefore universal you're relying on something about you that's just contingent that may or may not have happened right and so it becomes contradictory when in this case when you can't when you can't make sense of a rule that would say do x in order to achieve y when doing x if it's done by everyone would no longer achieve y
0: it's no longer rational does that make sense I hundred percent think so. I also think the contradiction in conception just makes the most sense to me out of the two. Sure. Um, yeah, I understand. It's it's easier
1: to wrap your mind around I think that than the one that's willing. But I think I can explain the willing one too.
0: So I'll quickly define the willing one, and then you'll sure. break it down. So yeah, yeah. a contradiction in will is a it, it basically means it's logically possible to universalize the maxim, but we can't will it.
1: Right. So he gives an example of that where um, look, I I I think I'm I'm. I think I'm pretty self-sufficient, so I'm not gonna help anybody else because I don't need anybody's help, right? Um, That's one of his examples. And he thinks that's one where um, the failure is a failure to will. The idea here is not that there is a contradiction between um, the maxim and like the the, the ends and the means within the maxim once you universalize it, right? So again, think of the maxim ends, means, and circumstances. There's debate about how much the circumstances get universalized, but we'll put that away. So the first kind of of failure is when, if everyone were to follow that maxim as if it were a law, the ends would no longer achieve the means. I mean, sorry, the means would no longer achieve the ends. Right. Right. Basically, the the failure in the willing is to say, when everybody else is following, (laughs) when everyone else is following that, uh, that maxim as if it's a law, I no longer want those ends anymore. I long no longer want to use those means to achieve those ends. It's not something that that would be rational to adopt anymore. right? One thing says you can't even achieve those ends with those means, that's the first kind contradiction. And the other one is it's no longer rationally part something to be to be moving towards, right? So when I talk think about, well, you know. Once I universalize the idea of, well, I don't need anybody else's help, so I'm not going to help anybody else, right? I realize that what makes me, that's contingent on me happening not to need anybody else's help. But if I universalize that, that means, in a sense, I could be somebody who does need somebody else's help. And so I can no longer will, I I no longer am motivated, I would no longer want to adopt a maxim that nobody gets any help. Because the part of me that could be—that's when I'm universalizing—maybe I sometimes need help, and so it's not something I can adopt anymore. It's not something that I can—I can choose. So one kind of contradiction—one kind is the contradiction between the ends and the means. The ends—the the means no longer achieve the ends, and the other is that sure the means may achieve the ends, but no one would want those ends anymore once everyone's doing it. Just no one would want. Want is the wrong word here because want implies something that is just a desire but here it's like no one could rationally adopt that way of acting because it wouldn't be rational to adopt it it wouldn't have rational it wouldn't be something a rational being would do not because of a contradiction just because it wouldn't be something to adopt as a goal anymore for a rational being uh, once it's universalized so a contradiction of conception means it you can't you can't, the, the ends no longer achieve the means. I'm sorry, the means no longer achieve the ends once it's universalized. Therefore, it's perfectly impermissible to do that. You may never tell a lie, period. That's what this says, right? Or at least you may never tell a lie in order to get money. <laughs> yeah, 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 But whatever, I mean, that that's a perfect duty because it, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. But the helping one is a little bit more complicated because I can't say, I can't adopt, I no longer can adopt, I can't, I can't adopt or make it my will that people shouldn't help each other. That isn't a contradiction, but it's not something I can will. So what's the duty that you get out of it? The duty is to help people. But how much help? Right? I, I can't, I can't use the categorical imperative in this formulation at least, to figure out exactly how much charity to give. So giving charity is an imperfect duty because it arises out of of an inability to will the opposing maxim. The opposing maxim means not to give charity, right? Or not to help people. And because it's not a contradiction, but it's an inability to will that maxim, it doesn't tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. It says help people, but it doesn't say exactly how how, how, how or how much. So in order to do how or how much, you, you would have to iterate this a little bit. You'd have to come, you, you know, in every instance of a decision-making procedure, you'd have to make a choice between different options. And maybe sometimes those would, those would give you results. So I know now that I'm supposed to help people, but I don't know how much. Now I'm walking down the street and I have, you know, a pound in my hand. And I'm thinking, you know, I'd like to buy a stick of gum and there's a homeless person there asking for money, right? Now I can test this specific maxim: Do I give the pound to the homeless person versus go buy the stick of gum? And maybe I can get a perfect duty out of this situation. But the general duty to give charity, I can't. That's not. A, that's not a. That's not a. Um, that's not a perfect duty because I don't. It doesn't tell me in general how much to
0: give or to whom. So the final thing we need to talk about for the syllabus is the second formulation of the categorical imperative. Okay. So do you want to explain what that is? Sure.
1: So that says, act such in such a way that you treat humanity whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. Okay, so the underscore here is merely. Everybody, I think a lot of people who make mistakes with the second formulation forget about the word merely. It's perfectly okay to treat other people as means to an end, right? You don't have to say, it's never good to treat people as a means to an end. Well, first of all, let's see, what does it mean to treat someone as a means? Basically, it's to use them in such a way, you're using them in order to accomplish something for yourself that's not in some way something that they participate or could participate in rationally. So the lying to get money example could be thought of in this way too. When I lie to somebody in order to give me money to manipulate them, I am, um, I am using them. I'm using their rationality. They're deciding how to act too. And I'm manipulating their rationality. Oh, he's promising me something, so I'll get it back so it's okay to give it to him. I'm manipulating their way of thinking. They're thinking about ends and means and, and, and moving those things together. I'm, I'm manipulating that to my own end. I'm manipulating that for my own good. I'm manipulating them in essence, right? So I'm using them to get something out of them. I'm using their reason to get something that their reason couldn't really adopt or participate. in. So to use someone as merely a means and not as an end. To use them as an end is to another way to put some what it means to use someone as an end is to be able to say I'm doing it for their sake. Could you ever lie to someone to get them to give you money, and say, well, I'm lying to them to get them to give me money for my for their own sake? It would, it's hard to imagine, right? I mean, right you think somehow there's some weird situation where they're they're too rich and you're going to give the money to charity and you're doing it for their and they're going to do it in their name, I don't know. There's some way of maybe making it up, but in general, if it's just you and your friend, you're lying to them because you're in the hard position and you want them to give you some money. You're not doing it for their sake, you're doing it for your sake. Exactly, yeah. Use someone as an end is to say that they could be the reason. You could do it for their sake. They could be doing, you could be doing something. In order for them,
0: you know, for their own good, so to speak. Um, so I mean, I guess the one thing I'd say is the way Kant puts it is lying undermines their power to make rational choices by depriving them of the truth to make an informed. Right. Exactly. Which is a good way of kind of summing it up. Yeah. Um, which which means we have a moral duty not to make
1: false promises. Right. Exactly, because you're you're testing the maxim, right? So when I remember that the categorical imperative, the categorical imperative tests maxims, and when they pass, that means they're permissible. So right. It, past that means the opposite is your duty so yeah i think we covered everything
0: thank you that was a that was a really good discussion thank you kenneth um just a reminder everybody do you want to talk about your book on the website again just so people don't forget
1: sure um the website is um let me just tell you the actual addresses if you'd like that um it's um the surrey center for law and philosophy it's surrey uh C e s s u r r e y c e n t r e Center L P dot org for Surrey Center L P for Law of .org is our website, and my book is called *The Functions of Law* by uh,
0: Oxford University Press. I mean, I'm definitely going to be checking the book out myself. Uh, I recommend anybody who's listening does as well. Thank you for joining me today, Kenneth. All right, thank you. Good luck with your exams. Thank you for listening to The Things You Thought You Knew, the A-Level Philosophy Podcast. I'm really sorry this episode ended up being so long. I was hoping to make it into a two-part episode, but I couldn't find a natural stopping point halfway through. Make sure to check out Kenneth Ehrenberg's book and the website. I'll make sure to link them both in the description. And while you're at it, make sure to check out The Things You Thought You Knew on Instagram and Facebook. And we have to shorten it for Twitter to At You Thought You Knew. We also have a website now, so make sure to check out the website. It's got links to everywhere you can listen to the podcast, as well as all our social medias. And it also has a link to all the resources that are mentioned in the episodes to the podcast. The cover art for this podcast was done by Grace Bulchin, and you can find her on Instagram at jinx.artx. Next week, I'm going to be discussing the tripartite view of knowledge with Benjamin Jones. So I hope to see you all then. Until then, have a wonderful week. I hope you're all doing okay.